tune in, tone up. Your one-stop shop for guitar tricks, tips, techniques and advice. With me, Gary Shilliday, and my own excellent teacher, Dan Davis. In this first interview with a guitar player, Gary asked Dan Davis for his thoughts about what the guitar means to him. We're aiming to include lots of other players in the future and ask them similar questions too. With questions about how he first came to play guitar, what his motivation and inspiration is, and how he gets past stage fright and nerves, these interviews will enlighten, educate and entertain. And Dan, let's just do this little mini episode. We're going to try and start including some interviews with other musicians and learning a little bit about their playing and technique, we hope, if people like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we were just reflecting a moment ago on the podcast, and there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that have listened to several episodes, and there's obviously an audience out there, and we're well, grateful for that. We would love to hear what people want. If there's things they, they would like us to cover which they feel are, that we've been remiss with you know do tell us and if we feel it's something that's got mass appeal certainly we'll get onto it for you and see what we can do there's loads of ways of getting in touch with us through soundcloud through our website tuneintoneup.com our facebook page like our facebook page and you'll keep getting notifications, notifications of uh, when we release episodes and further information about what we're doing as well but yeah, there's a few ideas that we've got to take it a step further. So we were thinking of releasing some interviews with guitarists around the Brighton area and maybe even beyond. We do have a fine bevy of musicians in Brighton, as I think any large town or city probably does. You know, There are some people who've done a variety of work and have got very interesting opinions, which are definitely worth hearing. And we've had some pretty big artists live in the area too and uh, the spin that we were looking at and discussing which i think could be really interesting was to take people who weren't guitarists and ask them questions Mm. that would benefit the guitarists like singers drummers bass players people involved with the music industry who aren't necessarily directly associated with the guitar itself so keep listening and we hope to deliver some of those things very soon now today, we thought about starting with an interview following the structure we're looking at doing in the future with the great Dan Davis. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. So, to answer your questions. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Good. Me too. Me too. Excellent. Um, so, what first got you into the guitar, Dan, and why did you become so fired up to learn to play it? Because you clearly are. Mm. It's a funny story in a way. I mean, like... Like anybody who has sort of older siblings, you do tend to look up to them. And my sister played the violin. And so when I went to school and had the option to take violin lessons, I took violin lessons. I played the recorder before that, like many people back in the 80s and went to school, did as their first instrument. And it wasn't really 
you know, I, I kind of did my best with it. You know, I was committed, but it wasn't really for me, if I'm brutally honest. So I took up the violin. How old were you when you took up the violin then? When I took up the violin, I guess I must have been, ooh, maybe sort of, I don't know, sort of seven or eight, probably eight years old, something like that. Did it for a, for a few years, did it for about three years or so. But I could, you know, I, I was never one to throw in the towel. I don't know if this is a family trait or it's just me. It's probably a bit of both. I was never one to kind of throw in the towel and go, I have had it with violin, I'm, I'm moving on. You know, I gave it a good stint, but I found the music reading very hard. And violin in particular, it's not an instrument necessarily which has instant appeal. It's one that you have to be pretty good at to get a good noise out of. Right. Okay. And I think that's a fairly universally accepted view, generally speaking, is that to make a violin make sweet noises, you've got to go through the pain barrier. And for me as well, being a kid, I mean, kids, when you're a kid, things are very transitory, aren't they? You know, you want things that are easy and simple and you don't want things which are complicated. You would never give a, a Nouvelle Cuisine meal to a three-year-old, you know. <laughs> you give them alphabets for pretty pointless. Toast, yeah. Man. Yeah. You know, you keep it simple. So ironically, when I look at what I take to a gig now, it's, you know, like, really? I'm carrying all that stuff. But at the time as a kid, there just seemed to be so many things going on with the violin. You've got to put the chin rest on, you've got to tighten the bow, you've got to resin the bow, you've got to tune it up, and, oh, and then you've got to read the music, you know. Yeah. It was like spending 38 hours on a plane for an evening abroad. It seemed like an awful lot of work, ironically. Now, of course, once you get bitten by the bug with an instrument, all that stuff doesn't really matter and kind of fades into the background. But at the time, it was kind of a bit of a hassle. So even practicing, although I did try, was a bit of a hassle. But I loved music. And when the option came up to have... There were some free guitar lessons back then at school. A rare thing these days, I know, but at the time they had some free lessons. When I was about nine or ten, I badgered my parents senseless. Let's play the free guitar lessons at school. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember my dad and I went and bought a second-hand guitar. We hopped on a bus one night, went to Hangleton. I put nine pounds of my pocket money. He paid the other nine pounds. And I came home a happy man with a classical guitar in a soft case. And once I got that guitar... I wasn't really parted with it. It was like, ah, oh, you've arrived. You've found your instrument. You can now relax and get on with learning how to play it. So that's the story of what drew me to guitar. And did you learn to read music? I um, was I crap at reading music, if I'm honest. I was absolutely yeah. rubbish at it. Um, the first proper guitar teacher, and I, I use that in the nicest possible way, when I, when I went to secondary school, I'd been playing for a couple of years. I got my first sort of guitar teacher that you pay to teach you. And he kind of tore his hair out trying to teach me the dots. It never kind of made sense to me. These days, luckily, I'm a reformed character and I understand the dots fairly well. Yeah. But at the time, reading music, I found very, very difficult to do and very, very slow. A piano is very logically laid out. Each octave is the same as the next, just in different registers. So once you've learned one octave, you learn them all. Stick to the white ones, you're in C major, it's yeah. not rocket science. Probably one of the reasons why piano is so easy to get your head around in its most basic form. Whereas the guitar, to start with, seems like a more complicated animal. Like, where are these notes? Every octave feels different from the last. 
Of course, in reality, there is a logic to it. But I think at such a young age, taking on that kind of concept would probably be quite hard to do, maybe, for some. Yeah. You know, so I didn't learn to read music immediately. I was aware of music. I'd had to learn to read it for the violin. But I wouldn't say that it instantly, for me, translated across to guitar at that point until I'd learned a little bit more. Well, this leads nicely into thinking about what do you wish you'd done more of when starting out? That's a really good question. I remember years ago, we are going back 20, 25 years probably. I don't know if this publication is still going. It probably is. There was an American guitar magazine called Guitar for the Practicing Musician. I'm sure it was a copy of that. When I couldn't get my regular squeeze, I used to go and get an American guitar mag because back then that's all we had. You had Guitarist Magazine or you had the American magazines. And in this one episode or issue that I bought, there was Steve Morse, who's now with Deep Purple, was talking about how it goes when you first start. And he said it sort of goes like this. Fun, challenging, frustrating, and so on. There's this whole kind of list mm. of things. And I think to start with, you are kind of like wowed by the fact of like, I've learned a new chord. I learned one yesterday, I've learned one today. I know twice as much than I did 24 hours ago. How cool is that? If I learn another one, I can play a song. That's amazing. And so you're wowed by all of those things. I suppose the one thing I wish I'd have learned a little bit more of a little bit earlier on would have been maybe music reading, reading notes in line with my learning. So my learning curve going sort of in line with my reading curve Yeah. for music, because that definitely would have paid dividends. And also sort of learning to write down the dots better so transcribing transcribing i'm pretty good at transcribing in tab but the guitar does some pretty strange things sometimes which can be quite hard to kind of write down in the dotted form yeah as you really know what you're doing so i wish i'd done that and i think i'd wish i'd have had a little bit more guidance as to sort of scales and keys and shown the logic of music i remember when i had my first lesson i was about 12 with the school guitar teacher I was both staring at this page. Like, if this note's this, and if this note's that, this note on this line, what's that then? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I have got Scooby. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it just think, doesn't make sense, does it? They're talking no, another language sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's talking in Swahili as far as I'm concerned. I think maybe if I'd have been shown the logical progression of how notes go and shown it in a more kind of regimented format... I would have been better because I was quite good, even as a kid, I guess, with sort of with facts and figures. And I was quite good with how things went together mathematically. And music has a lot of maths in it. And if I was shown from that perspective, I might have done better. But on the flip side, the guitar teacher at school was a great guy, a lovely guy called John Thackeray. And once he kind of understood that this kid's not going to learn to read music overnight, he was actually mega helpful. Yeah. And I don't regret having those lessons at all. It was a big help in many other ways. I think sometimes you have the seeds sown, don't you, when you're younger. They don't make sense to you at the time, but they're still there. Sometimes it takes time. I needed the other parts of the jigsaw puzzle. Once I learned as a teenager that there's this thing called a key, and that there's a key signature, and your key signature basically gives you the key for the whole piece, and once you know your scale shapes... So the key, the notes in the key are under your fingers, then it's easy because you just have to alter the ones which are the accidentals within the piece. 
So if you were the key of A and you've got F sharp and you've got G sharp and E sharp as well, if you suddenly get a G natural in there, it's quite easy to then just alter what you're doing, altering your fingering yeah. to accommodate that. But when you're just trying to retain all of this, these sharps or flats or whatever from the beginning of the piece and think, oh, I don't understand how that works. How am I supposed to hold that in my brain? And It's very difficult. Indeed. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there that think that are able <laughs> to resonate understand. with, hopefully, yes. Where do you draw your inspiration and motivation from? I think motivation, what I've seen with the general human race, and I've taught guitar for a hell of a long time, kids. I've taught guitar for over 20 years. All my adult life, really, I've taught guitar. And I've seen different levels of motivation. People who will absolutely hammer it and do things again and again and again and again and again until they get it. People who simply can't be bothered. People who take a little bit of what you say but don't necessarily practice meticulously. There's every kind of individual out there. I found for me, once I got to be a teenager, and when you're a teenager, your body's doing weird things, your personality's doing weird things, and you're looking for ways to make sense of the world and all the rest of it. For me, guitar was my little niche. That was my little safe haven. That was my thing that no one else dare mess with. Once I got to the point around that time where the bug had really bit, and basically I was going to be a musician, whether whoever liked it or not, it wasn't going to change. And at that point, when I started to get a bit more technique and a bit more understanding of music, I really started to take it on board. And I was quite, I could be quite focused and quite driven if I really, really want to do something. Very little will stop me from doing that. I remember reading an interview with Paul Gilbert and it really, really struck a chord with me at the time. And Paul Gilbert was saying, just because you can read and write, it doesn't make you a great author. You learn to read and write as a means to an end. But learning to be a great author, that comes over time. That's all about imagination. And he was saying that when he was a young guitar player, he wanted to get the techniques down and learn how to do stuff and learn how the guitar works from a note point of view, etc. So that he could get on with the job of being a guitar player, being a musician. He then got all of those things in the bag so that you're not forever trying to bring your technique up to the level of what you want to play. And I read that and that really resonated with me. I remember in my 18-year-old naivety sitting there thinking, I don't want to be had. I don't want someone to walk in this music shop that I'm working in and be better than me. And of course, there's always someone better than you. You know, how naive can you get? But it gave me the drive and the impetus to push on and press on and really try and nail this sucker and be in command of the guitar rather than the guitar telling me what to play. In terms of inspiration, I think I come from lots of different camps. And I think most of us, we look at the things that have shaped our musical taste. It's often not one thing. It's a number of things. And I don't regret any of the things that have shaped my musical taste, really. When I was much younger, my brother and sister were into the music of the 70s, as you would expect. So I I used to hear a lot of ABBA and a lot of Carpenters and all that sort of thing. And whatever you may think of quite sugary, sweet songs of ABBA and the Carpenters, you can't deny there is some really great songwriting in there. Some very good songwriting. And so the song has always been important to me. But then my dad had the help album by the Beatles. So I was listening to some of the 60s stuff. Because I'm 44, so when I was born, that stuff wasn't much in the past. You know, you're not even 10 years old, ironically. So as I grew up, I got more into 
the British blues boom music, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, the usual suspects. And then from there, I got into classic rock, got into hair metal and the shred thing, because I was going through the 80s, living through the 80s, so I got into the whole technical guitar thing. And then coming out at the end of that, I got into some of the, the jazzier, more fusion-y sort of areas. I was listening to players like Alan Holdsworth, you know, Scott Henderson, these much, much more jazzier players. And then since then, I've worked in a number of different bands. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I did a, a bluesy gig. And so I was playing a whole bunch of blues, which is quite quite rare for me. And then I do rock gigs and front the band and sing. And I also play in a band doing much more pop and wedding stuff. So all of these things kind of shape the sort of player you are. I've done session work and that sort of thing. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, there's two kinds of music. And that I stand by. There's good music and there's crap music. And if it's good, it's not down to genre. It's not down to if it rocks or not. It's, yeah. There's some great, well-written pop out there. There's some brilliant dance and house. There's some really yeah. great metal and thrash. Take Megadeth's Rust in Peace album. It's just a, a near-perfect thrash record. <laughs> it's amazing. The playing is just up there with the best. Yet at the same time, you can listen to a, a pop record and go, well, that's a really well-written pop record. So for me, the influences come far and wide. Probably through my playing, the two things that probably come out more than anything else, I'd say would be probably like the, the shred stuff of the 80s mixed in with kind of like a classic rock. Yeah, Dave Eric Gill, Johnson. Eric Johnson. Is a big one for you, isn't he, really? Eric Johnson, uh, <clears throat> Joe Satriani, Dave Gilmore. Dave Gilmore. Everyone loves Dave. Yeah. <laughs> There's not a guitar player out there who doesn't go, God, Dave. He's got a good voice, is not he? Yeah. Amazing voice, but his playing, although so simple, really pinpoints the notes that yeah. just sound so good and they're played in such a way as to sound amazing. Yeah. At the end of the day, the thing I think I found the toughest being a musician was knowing who the hell you are. Who am I? This doesn't look good in spandex. <laughs> you know. So no, I'm not Richie Sandor. They possibly don't look as good in spandex these days. Possibly not. But they looked great back in 86. <laughs> yeah, they probably weighed about three pounds. But yeah, where you sit, you know, I, I don't kind of sit there in a corduroy jacket with a big toilet seat guitar and play a load of jazz either. Yeah. I'm just a little bit of myself. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the well, one. Sorry, that was an elongated answer, but yeah, I think that... <laughs> yeah. We started to talk about something here, which is about other people who might be wanting to pursue a career in music. Is there advice that you'd give someone that wants to pursue a career in music don't do it uh, uh, what do you do if that would be <laughs> I wonder how many times we'll hear that don't do it <laughs> music pays you in two different ways really if you just want to be paid in a monetary way and you're not particularly bothered about what you do go and find a decent job get some qualifications work in a decent job paying decent money pushing paper around the office all day and then when you get fired and made redundant, go and find another boring job like that and follow the lemmings and do it all over again. You will be guaranteed of a steady income. You'll probably go to work better dressed than I do. You'll probably earn more money than I do. But sometimes that kind of stuff can be a little bit soulless. In terms of earning money out of music, it's a difficult one because there's an awful lot of musicians who don't earn an awful lot. I don't earn mega bucks for what I do. Not at all. And I have a whole family to support like you do. So my money is made up of playing in wedding bands, playing the pubs and the clubs, teaching 
both privately and also teaching for several other establishments and also running open mic nights. That's how my money comes together. Over the years, I've done instrument repair work. I've done guitar session work when it's come up. I've done solo acoustic gigs. You name it. If there's some money attached to the end of it for music, I've done it. There was a very interesting quote by an American bass player, which I know I've mentioned before, and it came up in a Guthrie Govan interview. And then they're asking him a very similar question. And this guy, I can't remember his name, this bass player, apparently he was quite well known. And he said, if you're sitting there wondering whether or not you should take up music for a living, thinking that it's just another option, don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. Whereas if you feel hollow and empty when you don't gig, when you can't get out there and play, then playing is the thing that kind of fires you up, it's, it's the thing that does it for you, that's what you do, then you already have your answer. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty much, I think, the way I, I kind of roll. Even when I didn't have a band and wasn't gigging much, I still used to go to open mic nights to keep my hand in. I couldn't keep away. And that's the thing to me, you know, music for me personally, although I love recording and stuff, I like the live format. I like going out there and and playing. As Phil Hillborn said, you're only as good as your last gig. Mm. That's what you'll be judged on, not the other 1,500 gigs that you've done over the last five years. You'll be judged on the, the last thing you've done. And I take great pride in going out there and giving the best performance I can do and trying to better what I've done over something previously. Yep, that's an awesome answer. What do you think guitarists do well that other musicians maybe struggle with? One thing that I'm always excited about when I see it in pupils is when they've come up with things of their own volition. You know, they've come up with a chord progression or a lick or something that's really cool. And they haven't necessarily thought it through. They haven't necessarily intellectualised what they've done. But they've just done it. I remember years ago, and we are talking 25 years ago here, when I was 19, I was invited on a music course run by Herbie Flowers. And there was this little three-piece band there. And I think they were called Inertia if my memory serves me correctly. And I think the guitar player was called Toby. I can't even remember his surname. And he just had this thing going on like with his songwriting where he clearly didn't really know the modes or the scales particularly, but he came out with really interesting chord voicings and stuff like that, where he just kind of played around with the instrument until he'd come up with something he liked. That's where I think guitarists triumph. I remember my guitar teacher I had when I left school said that he felt guitar was the best toy he'd ever bought. He never got bored of it. And if you can look at it kind of like that, like, what can I do with this toy today? What can I come up with? I think guitarists can be quite good with that because also with electric guitar and to a lesser degree acoustic guitar, there's a huge sonic palette, you know, with effects and all that sort of thing. You know, you get to the point where actually the effects have become the sound in the song, not just the instrument. You take something like The Edge from U2, although he's not a complex guitar player in the truest sense of the word, in terms of sort of being fast or knowing scales inside out and everything. He's a soundscape kind of a guy. He creates tremendous soundscapes for songs with the use of effects. Mm. You know, there's that kind of well-known bit of footage with Bill Bailey saying, you know, here's a massive technical failure at a U2 concert. And it's all going on with massive guitar delay sounds and everything. And... 
and everything goes down and he's just left with his guitar and amp and he's but you know that, that, that's where I think guitarists are quite good in being sort of inventive and versatile I guess with their sounds as well yeah so being, being creative and being versatile not everybody is that way inclined but I think it's something that with what's open to guitar players the nature of the guitar is it's yeah, if you had to build an instrument for a toddler, it would be an electric guitar and an amp because there's so many buttons to press. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many knobs to fiddle with. Yeah. And there's so many different sounds. Oh, if I put it all on 10, yeah, it sounds like a car crash. Brilliant. <laughs> and of course, how you learn. I remember being a kid and that's how we learn. How do I know what this pedal sounds like if I don't try everything, including it on 10? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what's my amp like when it's, you know, about to explode? It's a great toy, isn't it? Fabulous. And if you use that childlike inquisitiveness, which so many people do, it's a great creative tool. I think that's where guitarists can excel. Look at the amount of people who change their pickups in their guitar or fiddle about with it or have them refinished. Or People are forever tinkering with their stuff. Yeah. And, you know, musically tinkering, it's it's all in the same pot as far as I'm concerned. What what about the weaknesses that a guitar player might have over other musicians again? The weaknesses... I think the weaknesses that guitar players have, not getting down to the business of learning their instrument properly inside out from a musical point of view, or using the excuse that it will stifle their creativity. That I've heard as well. I've heard that. I don't want to learn on the scales because I'll sound like everybody else. No, you'll sound like you with some musical intelligence. As long as you hold on to the good stuff, if a surgeon opens up somebody who's got cancer... They don't go, oh, you've got a little bit of cancer at the top of your fire, I'm going to chop your leg off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how ridiculous would that be? You would want them to know a little bit more about what they're doing, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, so you, you try and retain what's good. Yeah. Get rid of maybe sort of not knowing your way around the instrument, but retain what's good. If you try and sort of reinvent the wheel with the student, it never works. I remember when Alex, the guy who I played with in one of the bands, came to me for guitar lessons, which how we first met. And he just had this immense feel. It was just on it. You know, whatever he played was going to sound good. And I thought, I don't want to mess with that because that's perfect. That's developed very nicely and we'll continue doing so. So we ain't going to mess with that. But what would be really good is to give him a bit of knowledge just so he could then take what he does, take it off into his own stratosphere, do his own thing with it. And so that's what I always try and do with students is keep their strengths and try to sort of alleviate the weaknesses, you know, rather yeah. than alleviating it all. I think there's a lot of guitarists out there who, dare I say it, sometimes can be a bit lazy. Or they're scared. They're scared of learning a bit of technique. Because, you know, and I've often said to people, a little bit of technique goes a long way. You don't have to be a master shredder to benefit from technique. Even for it to clean up your picking or mean that faster lines just flow a little bit nicer you don't get your pick caught up in the strings when you're trying to do something a little bit trickier. Even things like that, just a little bit of technique can go an awfully long way. Yeah. You know, and I think sometimes there's that little bit of fear of that. A little bit of fear of the unknown. The other thing which guitarists are absolutely terrible with is being so opinionated. You know, you get the go, well, strats are great for clean sounds, but they're crap for rock sounds, aren't they? I'm a great rhythm player. But I'm not very good at I'll leave the lead up to him. He's much better than me. Yeah. 
well, Les Paul's are good with a dirty guitar sound, but they're not going to be good on clean sounds, are they? You see it online in forums. <laughs> you, you hear all this stuff over yeah. and over again. Everyone's got something to prove. Yeah, I think guitarists can be very, very opinionated. And sometimes they don't always appreciate that actually the biggest part of your rig is you. Not your amp. It's not your guitar. It's not your pedal board. Even if it would double as a coffin for a small child. It's you. You are the biggest part of your rig. Yeah. You are the most important bit of your rig. The tone will flow from your fingers. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you don't want nice effects. I'm not saying that you won't sound better or what you're playing will sound a little bit better through a nicer amplifier. Of course it will. But you are the biggest part of your rig. When I used to go to open mic nights, I would never take anything with me but a guitar. And the idea was, if I can get a good sound out of this piece of crap amplifier that they dug out of some archaic basement... <laughs> then I can get a good sound out of anything. Yeah. If I can make this amp sing, I can make anything work for me. And I'm fairly confident, if I had to, but I've taken guitars out to gigs that, that you shouldn't take out to gigs. I've done full-on rock gigs, I've played a Strat all night. I've done full-on rock and hard rock gigs, and I've played a Telecaster all night. <laughs> <laughs> and you can still make it work. You know, I remember turning up to a, a full house gig and I was always well known for using guitars with lots of mixed sound and lots of different switching and I turned up with a Les Paul gold top and the other guitar player, Al, said to me, you can use that all night. Yep. Oh, so I'll make it do what I want. And so there's a yeah. lot of misconceptions out there. Oh, fair point. You can do an awful lot with gear if you... It's quite good to challenge yourself as well, isn't it, in that way? Give me a Les Paul Junior with one P90 in the tone and volume pot and I'll play a wedding function. Giggle <laughs> and I'll get all of the sounds. What, what about um, songwriting? What do you think works and doesn't work? It's a big topic. So, songwriting, I think it's a tough one because you can give people all of the nuts and bolts of songwriting and explain to them how it all goes together. But in the end, it's kind of got to come from them. Yeah. And there's very few people who write songs, and every song is a belter. You know, a lot of albums, like a band, will write thirty songs between yeah. them and they'll walk away with 10 you know, not every song is always going to be a winner I think you know when you've got a good thing going on I think one of the biggest problems with songwriting is seeing it through and we, is that when we start a project seeing it through till the end and I suppose with songwriting it depends on what kind of vibe you want the amount of choice you've got in front of you almost yeah I mean if I write I must admit some of my tunes tend to be a bit more melancholy you know I wouldn't say I'm the world's best at writing upbeat pop songs, but I think you need something that people can latch on to. I think there's also there's some good creative tools out there like looper pedals, even delay pedals like I use the, the Strymon Timeline, and it's an inspirational piece of kit. You know, the sounds that come out of it. You know, I swear you could sit there and have inspiration for an entire album if you played around <laughs> with it for long enough. So... I think opening your ears to other sounds and possibilities and, and everything. Trying other instruments, maybe. Try writing on a different instrument. Try writing on piano or keyboards instead of writing on guitar all the time. Something I've done on occasion is I've tried writing things in an odd key, but using as many open chords as I can, which means kind of re-fretting things and thinking outside the box a little bit or try using... Revoicing those chords to, yeah. get to be open. Because you get yeah. some very interesting chord combinations then and voicings of chords. Try dad-gad tuning and stuff like that. 
try open tunings, try using a slide. All of these things, anything which is experimental, should in the end culminate in something that sticks. But I think some people are just very naturally gifted coming up with very good songs, very clever song ideas. Yeah. And they just have the natural thing sort of going on. Just like our recent podcast on Tom Petty, he belted them out. No, there's a lot of good songs in there. I think the other thing with songs is always draw on your life. You know, the more life experience you have, the things that you've gone through, good and bad. Yeah. I remember working with a guy, we were going to do some acoustic gigs, unfortunately it never came to fruition. But in the process of working up to that, he wanted to do songs that not everyone did. And he wanted to take the audience along with him, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's... Which is kind of cool. That does sound good, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, I think sometimes we get used to... Firing it out there. Firing it out there, thinking about it. Getting the crowd pleasers out there and all the rest of it. Whereas sometimes with with maybe more intimate sort of songs or acoustic songs, it can work quite well trying to get the audience on side and taking them along for the ride, if at all possible. I think, if I'm honest, and I know there's probably going to be a few naysayers out there when I say this, but I think the way we listen to music is not the way it was ever intended. And I think it's a little bit sad. When I was a kid, you bought an album and you listened to it from end to end as a body of work. And you only skipped the songs that you really couldn't stand. If it was still a song that was kind of not your favourite, but it was all right, you'd still listen to it. But you ended up listening to the song, usually through headphones, maybe a Walkman or something, or a good set of stereo speakers where you, every time you listen to it, you hear a new piece of detail which you didn't hear before. So it's like listening to a different album every time. And you hear all that detail, especially through good headphones. And then on top of that, you're listening to it as a body of work, as it was intended. The reason people have a producer to help them with an album is to push it in a certain direction and to get the whole album sounding like a complete piece of work. If you went out there and you got Van Halen's 1991 For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge album, and then you got the next album in line, which was called Balance... Right. A couple of years later. Although they're both Van Halen albums, they both sound like Van Halen, you listen to For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge, it all kind of fits under the umbrella of that album. That album's got a sound, and so is the Balance album. One's about sort of really great sort of straight-ahead songs, and the other's a little bit more avant-garde, I would say. But, you know, that's the role of a producer, is to push these songs in that direction. So I think sometimes it's good to maybe try things that are new, Try things that are different. Hum a melody and see where that takes the chords. Yeah. Let you know, let things flow a little bit. Don't discard just a chord progression or a line. Could actually be the start of a really great song. See if you can pursue it. Okay. Now that leads us nicely into a, a couple more questions, if we've got time. Mm-hmm. Firstly, what genre, style or techniques do you want to improve in your playing and why? Are there different styles that you haven't even dabbled in that you wish you could have a little bit of time to do so? There's a few things that I'd really love to be able to spend my time with because, of course, a lot of us get locked into the kind of either the sort of pub and club scene where we're knocking out classic rock stuff or we get locked into the wedding scene. They're the two instant gratification lines of of earning money from live music, aren't they? Because if we try and do our own stuff, it's great, but often it's poorly paid. 
uh, and it's a long road before you get any money quite often. You know, trying to become famous is just a bit of a joke. Leave that to the X Factor contestants. And so you tend to end up with the crowd-pleasing songs, the typical choices. Mm. And that leads you often with fairly typical playing choices that you might be called upon to perform. However, I have done the odd jazz gig, and I would love to improve as a jazz player. Jazz isn't my natural home, but I do love it. I do love the the kind of the harmony, sometimes the dissonance in the chords and the, the scale choices, the playing outside and the, just the general kind of sort of vibe of, of playing that kind of stuff. I'd like to be better at it. I wish I was Joe Pass, the man who was so natural with the way he played and jazz ran through him like Brighton does through a stick of rock. And in a way, being a kind of a rock player, for me, that's what happens when I play the rock stuff. For me, that's natural home. But I'd love to become a more natural sort of jazz player rather rather than blagging it quite as much. So I don't blag it too much, but do a little bit. I'd love to become a better country guitar player. I'd love to develop the country guitar style a little bit more than I have. I've certainly got somewhere with it, but I'd like to get somewhere else. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I sort of see that as a strength, really, in your playing, I think. It, it's definitely added a different edge to it that I don't hear often enough in other players, and I, yeah. I wish I did because it's it's a, a really cool style, and I did immerse myself in that style to kind of get as far as I did. But I would like to take it further. You, know, you listen to someone like Jerry Donoghue playing his kind of tune called The Claw. You realise how rubbish you are as a country guitar player. But yeah, that's a phenomenal piece of music if any guitar players out there want to give it a listen. As well, I guess like the rockabilly and stuff like that. Yeah, it's good stuff, isn't it? It's kind of cool and it's kind of its own style. Imelda May is it and her ex-husband is the guitarist in her band. That's really good. It's something else I would like to be far better at because I'm not not really a natural with it. It's the contemporary acoustic style. Like people like Andy McKee and... Like the percussive John, stuff. John Gomm. Yeah, the percussive stuff is uh, is interesting for me, I think. But it's a whole new <laughs> instrument again. It yeah, is. I mean, this is, this is, in a way, the beautiest thing with guitar. Is you never... If you, were, you, know, if you lived to be 10,000 years old, you'd still never run out of stuff to do. Yeah. It, it's infinite. <laughs> it is. I mean, Les, Les Paul, I think, gigged up until he was 92 or something. Goodness gracious. I mean, he yeah. died at 94, didn't he? And he was an amazing guitar player in his heyday. So underrated. You know, he was on he was on TV, I think, five times a day back in the 50s. And he's, he played some amazing stuff. You know, no slouch. No slouch. Yeah. For a clean amp where there's nowhere to hide. Yeah, yeah. I kid you not. I'm sure he, even towards the end of his life, probably, oh, damn, there's so much I wish I'd have known. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't he it? He must it's have. That's the problem. You never get to the end. Okay, here's a here's a slightly different question to end on. So what's your advice for gigging, in particular, nerves when you're getting up there? <laughs> if you can remember. <laughs> I think everyone gets nerves. It's how you handle it and deal with it. Because we are human. Or we yeah. have our imperfections, we have our frailties, we have our things that we're not so good at. But how we handle it, now that's different. That can take someone from being a sort of a gibbering wreck yeah. into being able to get things under control and deal with it. There's several things that I think are helpful. One thing Steve I said, you often find when you play live, your gear can be a bit of a cruel mistress. It doesn't mean to be, 
but in every single room, your amp will sound different. So you take your amp to a pub where there's lots of wood, lots of carpet and lots of people, you'll get a sound as dead as dead can be. I used to gig in a pub, a little dive of a place in New Haven, and it was tiny. And if you pack the place out with 80-odd people, it was rammed wall to wall, both bars. And if you struck a chord with no reverb on your, your guitar, there was nothing coming back at you. Donk. It was dead as dead can be. You play other places with a high ceiling, like I played a, a place in Westgate on Sea, and it's essentially like this massive church hall where they have weddings and things. It's stone everywhere, wooden pews, high ceiling. The bass just burbles around the place. Treble tings through everything. There's no mid-range whatsoever. So everything goes boom and ting and has nothing in the middle. And as Steve Vai said, you've almost kind of got to get yourself into that state where you're in a little bit of a bubble and you kind of go, I know the setting's right. I know this amp and this guitar and these pedals sound amazing. However it sounds because of the room, we'll ignore that, we'll park that. We know out there it sounds amazing. And kind of keep telling yourself that, you know, bear in mind that, you know, it's not going to sound perfect every time. Okay. So that's one thing which can calm your nerves and stop you knob twiddling every night. I heard Josh Homme doing an interview the other day from Queens of the Stone Age mm. and them Crooked Vultures, and, and he talked about perfection. He said, you know, I don't go out to be perfect. What's the point in that? There, mm. there, isn't, such a, there isn't such a thing. No. So I'm going out to play music, and I don't care. And it's quite a good attitude, maybe. I mean, obviously, he wants to be good. So don't get me wrong. But, you I know. think sometimes it also depends on the genre you're looking at. You know, I think possibly in certain musical forms, people worry less about their sounds and more about the songs and other situations. It's, you know, the sounds are all important. Yeah. It's very, very precise. I think the thing is that you, every venue is going to sound different. So don't let, don't let that bug you. If in a nice dry venue, your gear sounded awesome, it's going to sound awesome here, but it may sound different. The other thing I've always made a habit of doing, especially with the guys in the band, is literally giving people just a minute. I'll look around at the guys in the band. Are they ready? Are they standing by their mic stands, guitar amp on, ready to go? Or are they looking at the tuner on the floor on their pedal board and tuning up? And I'll say, is everyone okay? We're all good to go. And sometimes it just gives people a minute just to like, if there's something bugging them, something bothering them, if they've been faffing around with an intermittent guitar lead and, and they've been wondering whether they should change it or not, it gives them the opportunity to go, hold on a second, I'm just going to change this. If the drums aren't quite in the right place, gives them the opportunity to just kind of get their little world the way they want it. I sometimes find even in between numbers, because sometimes other band members want to crack on, and actually it takes time to kind of sort of change your sounds, stick a capo on, start the next song. I sometimes have to sort of slow the other guys down. So don't be too rushed, too flustered. Learn to laugh off mistakes, but learn from them. You know, it can be very frustrating making the same mistakes and so try and learn from those mistakes. How you cover over a mistake is all important. But with nerves, I think there are certain things which can certainly help, giving yourself, as I say, a minute before you pull the pin and go for it. Being as well rehearsed as you can possibly be and confident in your rig mm. as well, confident in controlling your guitar live and all that sort of thing. If you've got a really important gig and you're not confident in yourself, don't take the brand new guitar that you've just bought. Leave it at home, get to know it, then take it. 
or use a lower level gig, like a pub gig or something like that, to try new stuff out. Things like that can help. You know, things like new purchases can really throw people. Yeah, make it as close to how you, you practice, I guess. Yeah. Make it as close to what you're used to. But the best thing you've got on your side in terms of curbing nerves is really being confident in what you're doing. Because I've been doing it a long time and I'm confident enough in my own abilities and because I've seen virtually everything that can be possibly seen live within reason, I think I've seen it on the local circuit. You know, I've played weddings where I've seen plastered guests giving piggyback rides to other people fairly near to the stage and having to push them away and thinking, well, that's going to end in tears. And it did. The girl went away and he, once she fell off him, did her ankle in. I've known projectile guests coming out of nowhere, sprawling all over my pedal board, still with a coronation in their buttonhole. Guests throwing up, fights kicking off. I was playing a little bar once in Arundel on a Wednesday night of all places. I was playing in a duo. A fight between two blokes came out. They came hurtling towards the pair of us, ploughing our mic stands into our teeth. Nasty. So I've seen that. Never mind the cursory broken strings, amp playing up, lead not working. I've seen the other guy in the band have his transformer in his amp die mid gig, and he had to become the he had to become the front man while I was put on guitar duties for the rest of the gig so that we could get through. Yeah. You know, you name it, I've seen it. And because I've seen it and lived through it, you get better at managing it. And when you can manage all of that stuff. There isn't really room for nerves, but you have to kind of go through the pain barrier with it. Yeah. So get out there, get yeah. some experience, learn how to make it work. Yeah. And, and that will help curb your nerves. What causes nerves? It's not usually that you're going to look like an idiot. It's usually fear of the unknown or a lack of confidence in being able to pull it off. That's probably what causes the worst nerves. And so if you're well rehearsed, that's going to help. If you're confident in your abilities and your bandmates' abilities, that's going to help. If you're confident in your gear, that's going to help. Make your gigging environment as manageable and easy as possible. If your pedalboard's playing up and making crap loads of racket, pull the thing apart, put it back together again. Go and buy anything new that you need to buy to make the thing work. It's one less stress you've got to deal with. If you're wondering whether those strings are going to die on a gig, or change them while you've still got time. You can change a set of strings in 10 minutes, do it before the gig, get there 10 minutes early. Try and eliminate the things that are likely to cause you the stress that leads to nerves in the first place. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? I it's, do. It's well, like I'll... a chain reaction. There's nothing yeah. worse than going to a gig going, I hope my rig works tonight. I think as a teacher, I fully understand, because when you start training to teaching secondary schools and there's so many things that can go mm. wrong yeah it's, it's not dissimilar i don't think no you, it's a process of it's a process of elimination yeah and i think one last point sorry i'm going on and on and on here aren't i interview with your granny <laughs> <laughs> one last point i'd like to make i think is not only control your, your musical environment from the point of view of making sure that everything is working but have your own little ritual. Have your own little ritual that ensures that everything is there that you need. I make sure every guitar which is in a case and is going to be gigged has picks in it in the case. 
has a capo in the case, has a pen in the case, has spare strings in the case. Having a pen may seem stupid, but believe me, having a pen can be useful when the singer suddenly decides to do a song that you haven't done for seven years. You can always go to the bar, grab a piece of A4 paper that scribbles some notes down. Yeah. You know, having spare strings at least means that you're not all at sea if you pop a string. Having a capo, you don't want to be rethinking a part on the fly if you can possibly avoid it. Also, all of the cases of guitars that I've got have a lead in the case, so that if I get to a gig and one of my leads was to go down, there's always a spare on board. And when I do a wedding gig, I take two amps. I usually take two pedal boards. And the reason is, A, in case one dies, there's always a backup. And B, because when you go to a wedding venue, you never know how bad or good the loading is going to be. By having two rigs, a large and a small, you can then decide, based on the venue and how difficult it is to get in and out of it, what you're prepared to carry. <laughs> leave the big one in the car. Leave the small one in the car. I leave the yeah. big one in the car. My small lamp stays here with me, but when I have a wedding to play, the small lamp comes along. If I've got an easy load in, I'll take the big amp in, and this will stay in the car as backup, and vice versa. I've, as I say, we've got two pedal boards, one large, one small. You know, make your environment as convenient as possible. Eliminate the things that cause the worry, that lead to stress. Yep. And that will then help in the live environment. I've now got my, you know, I'm 44 now, so I guess we're 20, 30 years into gigging now. And so over the last 30 years, I've, I've learned a lot about going prepared and having the right tool for the job and having the right gear that hopefully won't let you down anyway. But we've got a backup measure if it does. Even silly things, like if you don't have a spare lead and you're using a radio pack, if your batteries die mid-gig because you forgot to change them at the last gig, how are you going to plug into your board? I have my radio transmitter on my big board mounted underneath so if i'm my batteries die if i don't have a guitar lead that i can plug straight into the board i'm stuffed because i can't do a gig on a one foot guitar lead even silly little things like that it's just in your mind can then instantly go and yeah you know like, and i have actually had a problem once or i had an issue with one of the leads and i was able to do it just unplug one lead plug in a 10 foot guitar lead great two minutes we're rocking again yeah brilliant stuff thank you very much Pleasure. Stay tuned for more episodes, jams, improvisation ideas and well-informed thoughts about amps, pedals and guitar tone. If you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes, find us on SoundCloud or see our website on tunein-toneup.com. Here you'll find show notes, tabs and further research and resources. It's also a good place to get in touch. We hope you're finding these lessons as interesting and as useful as I do and if you have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Yeah.